good to have so many of you here this morning again. And as Ernie said, if you're visiting, we're just, we're just so happy that you've come to worship Christ together with us. What a privilege that is for us. We don't take that lightly. Uh, we, are, we are honored that you've come to, to worship here with us. If you have any questions or if you have any concerns or any needs of any kind, please come and find us uh, after the service. We would love to do whatever we can to kind of help along your journey. Uh, it's, it's just so neat for us. Shayla and I joke all the time. Is it feels like we could probably go anywhere in the world and find somebody who has been to this church in the last few years uh, and, and hopefully have a free place to stay. Wink, wink to all of you. No, I'm just kidding. Um, no, no, it's just so cool to be able to know that there's people from all over the world that we just gather together, that we worship. Uh, it's just such a beautiful thing. So this morning, we're going to continue a series. You can, you can turn to Acts chapter 8. It's going to take me a minute to get there. Uh, I'm going to follow my notes better this week than last week so that we actually get out of here on time. Um, but here's where we've been. If you're visiting or if you've been away uh, you can always catch up online, but I'm just going to give you a real quick outline of where we've been so that uh, if any of these kind of spring to mind and you go, man, I would like to learn more about that or, or see what the Bible has to say about that, you can jump on our website and do that. Uh, we've been studying through a series on our ecclesiology, more specifically the doctrine of the church. Who are we as a church? Why do we exist? What's our purpose? What are the things that we do? Uh, I'm sure you've figured this out by now, but I'm very passionate about the local church. I think it is vital for the health of the believer, each believer, to be committed to a local family where they worship and where they serve, among other things that we're going to talk about uh, in the next coming weeks. And you might think that, of course, the pastor's saying it's vital. Uh, that's his job, and he needs to get paid. While that might be true, that's not the point. Um, let me, I'm going to be as clear as I can, so I'm going to read this sentence. I am not a pastor, sorry, I am a pastor. I'm a pastor because I think that the church is vital and necessary, not the other way around. So in other words, I believe that God has called me into a ministry of teaching and, and to serve the local church, to show them the importance of community, of connection, and most importantly, of gathering together around God's word and studying it, that it might shape the rest of our lives, how we see the world. And so that is a deep conviction that I have, and that, that is probably the most exciting part of a few years back when Shayla and I candidated here. The word of God was central to this church. This is what we study. This is what we do and Greg, if you're not interested, there's the door. That's not quite what they said. But basically, that was the point, is, and we say this all the time, is you don't come to hear my opinion. You don't need to hear my opinion. Um, there are far more smart people in the world, more intelligent and more educated than me, that you could jump on a podcast and listen to, and I, and I, and I hope you do. I hope you do seek to grow deeper in your spiritual walk apart from this, but also that there's a significant biblical importance of gathering together as the saints worshiping together, praying for one another, and seeking to become more like Jesus. So we've defined the church using a quote from Mark Dever who says this, a local church is a body of people that are marked out by the fruit of God's spirit as holy and loving. In other words, we're a group of people that are called to be God's hands and feet in this world to serve for the health, not only of our own body like this church, though that is true, but also then to the community at large. And so we've addressed a few different things together. We addressed why is it so important for the corporate gathering of the saints? Why should we be together? COVID really did a number on us in that way, and we were very isolated in, in, in small groups or in little Zoom sessions. And coming out of that, we want to say that that never was meant to replace 
the corporate gathering of the saints. So if you want to hear more about that and the biblical rationale behind that, you can jump online and check that out. Then we looked at why should we serve? We live in a consumer-driven culture. And that is true sometimes of the church as well. And we look for a, what church can serve me? And then we kind of church shop, as it were, and we go around to see which one has the things that I want. Rather than going, God, where are you calling me to serve and to be involved and to help others? As Charles Spurgeon once wrote, do not go where it is all fine music, grand talk, and beautiful architecture. Go where the gospel is preached and go often. And so we're going to endeavor to do that all the time to make sure that the gospel is central in everything that we do. And we're going to remind ourselves that as Jerry Bridges once wrote, you've got to preach the gospel to yourself. How often? Every day. Every day we need to be reminded of that. Then we looked at, at discipleship. Specifically, we phrased it, why go? Why are we called to, not why are we, we are called to go into the world and make disciples. Sometimes we dichotomize discipleship into this idea of evangelism and kind of the ongoing work of discipleship where the Bible doesn't really make that distinction. As you are going is the vernacular we used last week. As you are going, wherever that is, to work, to your friends, to um, your hobbies, to whatever aspect of that is, even, and I heard a great story from someone, even someone who was diagnosed with cancer that went, as I am going to the hospital, I'm going to preach the gospel. And what a wonderful testimony of a faithful servant of Jesus who shared his belief with each nurse and with each doctor that came through as he looked at that was my mission field now. And so as we are going, we need to disciple uh, the world around us. Then, uh, this morning, we move into this question, which I addressed a little bit because it is in Matthew 28, uh, baptism. Why do we do baptism? What, what is baptism? What's its significance? And what are we called to do from a biblical standpoint? But then I didn't want to do that without tying it to the other thing. So there's two things that we call ordinances. These are things that uh, Christ commissioned the local church to carry out in an ongoing way. And so this, this word ordinance basically is that Christ ordained us to go and to do this continually. So baptism and then communion, which we're going to celebrate later or sometimes referred to as the Lord's Supper. And so we're going to look at uh, both of these things. We're going to look at the biblical context of this and what Jesus has called us to do, why he's called us to do this, and, and how we're going to do this as biblically as we can. So, baptism. Our church belongs to the Associated Gospel Churches of Canada, and on their website you will read this. The Lord Jesus mandated two ordinances, believer's baptism and the Lord's Supper. Though not a means of salvation, these ordinances testify of the gospel. And so I want to clarify that right at the beginning. Baptism and communion does not save you. It doesn't lead to salvation. Though I am going to argue for the next, you know, however long, that these are necessary things that we do that Christ has called us to. And so I think sometimes we look at it, we're like, well, well, if I don't need to do it to be saved, then I guess I don't need to do it. And I think that's a really poor understanding of what Scripture teaches us. Jesus teaches us to obey all that I have commanded. We read last week. We're going to read that again. So if he commanded us to do these things, even we shouldn't look at it like as long as I get into heaven, that's the goal. That shouldn't be the goal. The goal should be presence with Christ, and not just for us, but for all those around us. And so let's, let's, I'm going to read to you again real quick this verse in Matthew 28 
19, uh, 2 verses 19 and 20. Go, therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Teach them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the very end of the age. We are called to baptize others in the name of the Father and the Spirit and the Son. So, again, we got here real fast this time. Why do we baptize people? Because Jesus said so, right? We're going to say that every single week. The first answer is always because Jesus said so. So Sunday school, you may not have Sunday school this summer for the kids very often, but you can probably catch that real quick because Jesus said so. Now there's this assumption there though too, is if we are called to baptize others, what is that assumption? That you're baptized then too. In fact, the New Testament authors to them, sorry, it's a foregone conclusion that if you were a follower of Christ, then you have been baptized. So let me be so bold as to say it this way, and please don't hear me being critical, but hear me being passionate about the word of God says, is if you are a follower of Jesus Christ and you have not been baptized, you are not living under accordance to what he has commanded. So I would challenge you over these next minutes, really listen to what Scripture says and ask yourself, should I be baptized? What does the Bible teach? And should I be obedient to what Christ has to say to me? The good news is that over this next few minutes here, if, if you go, man, I, I have committed my life to Jesus, but that step of baptism is something I haven't yet taken, the good news is we're gonna, we can fix that real quick is August 21st, we're going to head down to Cascade Ponds, and we're going to have a baptismal service there, and we're in the works of whether we can actually have an outdoor service there that day. We're going to have food and, and a potluck type of situation or barbecue. Afterwards, uh, we're going to make a whole kind of day of it. And so if you have not been baptized, and, and, and actually this kind of came up because somebody approached me and said, I haven't yet been baptized. I need to be. Praise the Lord that people are reading the scriptures and going, i got to follow Jesus. But if you haven't yet, then consider that, circle that date on the calendar, and please come and talk to us. We would love to connect with you and hear your story of faith. Now, maybe you don't know exactly what baptism means or represents, so let me back up here a little bit. If baptism is confusing to you, uh, maybe it's because you've been to various different church traditions where it's talked about differently or different levels of emphasis is put on it or how they do baptism is different. And even in our AGC statement, we've titled it Believer's Baptism. And I'm going to come back to that in a few minutes to say why I think that's so important. Well, let's clarify here. Baptism is not actually a New Testament teaching only. It's really quite interesting. The concept exists in the Old Testament as a way of initiating people into the Jewish faith. And uh, archaeologists have found some of these old Jewish towns where they had little baptismal kind of tanks, for, for lack of a better word. And this was a practice that they did. But in the New Testament, it further expands to John the Baptist. And he preaches a, a baptism of repentance. And then later on, the scriptures extend that into Uh, not just a baptism of repentance, but a baptism into the Spirit, into fellowship with Christ. So here's what Lexham Bible Dictionary, here's how it defines it. Baptism is the act of washing in water as a part of purification ritual, the rite of a form, excuse me, the rite of formal initiation into the Christian church through water. That's kind of a very technical definition. Here's one that I heard from John Piper this week in one of his podcasts on baptism. He explained it very simply. Baptism is uniting us together in Christ. And there's actually two things there. Uniting not just me together in Christ, 
but us. So it's both with Christ, but also with one another. Again, baptism doesn't save you. That was accomplished only by Jesus' sacrifice on the cross through his death and resurrection. Uh, How do we know that? Luke 23, we read this. Uh, Actually, I'm just going to sum it. Jesus is being crucified, and there's two criminals on either side of him, right? And one is hurling insults at the other, and the other repents, right, in that moment. And, And he says, Father, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Or Jesus, remember when you come into your kingdom. And what does Jesus respond with? Anybody remember? Truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. This man found salvation, though he wasn't baptized. But if you're going to use that text to say, so I don't need to be baptized, you're misreading what the Bible's trying to tell you. You've already made a conclusion, and then you're trying to find proof for it, and that's not the way we want to do it. This is not the normative. This is the very, very rare, is if you have made confession of faith in Jesus, then you have time to be baptized right now. This, This man literally did not. So it's not about salvation, but it is something further. Let's read from Acts chapter 8, and here's kind of a more normative example of baptism, uh, except for the very last verse. That gets a little bit strange, but that's okay. Uh, It's the wonderful workings of God. Here we have Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch. Perhaps you remember the story, but I'm going to read from verse 26. It says this, Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Rise and go toward the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. And he rose and went, and there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning, seated in his chariot, and he was reading the prophet Isaiah. The spirit said to Philip, go over and join this chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked, do you understand what you were reading? And he said, how can I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now the passage of the, of scripture, sorry, the passage of the scripture that he was reading was this. Like a sheep, he was led to the slaughter, and like a lamb before his shears is silent. So he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. And the eunuch said to Philip, about whom, I ask, does the prophet say this? About himself or, or somebody else? Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. And as they were going along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, See, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? And he commanded the the chariot to stop, and they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. And when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of of the Lord carried Philip away, and the eunuch saw him no more and went went on his way rejoicing. But Philip found himself at Azotus, and as he passed through, he preached the gospel to all the towns until he came to Caesarea. So here's this beautiful story of an example of baptism. There is so much you could talk about here. I love the wording of, of when God says to Philip, you need to go and talk to this person. What did he do? He ran. Right? He ran there. He didn't just go, are you sure, God? Like, is this really what you want? Like, I don't really know him. There's some cultural differences. There was no excuse. He just ran. There's there's just so much we could get into, but we're not going to for this morning's purposes. The point is he's reading through the Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible. He's reading through it, and he's confused. Who who is Isaiah speaking to? And again, what does he do? Well, he starts with that scripture, and then he points that to how it's all about Jesus. 
See, everything in the Old Testament is pointing towards Jesus. And so, again, I've said this lots of times. If you're reading the Old Testament and you don't see Jesus, you're probably reading it wrong. This is what it's pointing towards. And the other part that I love about this is after Philip gives him the gospel, he clearly responds. And then whose idea is it to be baptized? That's the most beautiful part of the text. The, the, the Ethiopian goes, hold on, I see water. Right? So clearly, in Philip's presentation of the gospel, baptism was a part of it. Otherwise, he wouldn't know any different. Clearly, this was important to Philip that he shared what Jesus said, go make disciples, baptize them, and teach them to obey everything I've commanded. He takes that seriously. And so, he has obviously said this, and the Ethiopian goes, this is now, this is the next step. I've made the first step, it's now the next step. And so if you think about it in this way, baptism is meant to be this outward declaration of what has happened internally. That belief that Jesus is who he claimed he was, that I need to follow Jesus with my life, is then, and now I want to do that, not in a private, internal way that has no bearing on my life. It doesn't work that way. That's not what Scripture teaches. Scripture teaches that when you become a new creation, you are radically different, and the world can see it. And so you then outwardly take this next step. But there's also some deep, deep symbolism here. In Romans 6, Paul uses baptism as an image of unity with Christ. This is verses 3 and 4. He says this, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. It's just another beautiful passage where where the symbolism becomes clear is as you go down into the water, you're surrendering yourself. You're willingly going down to your death. Doesn't that sound like a New Testament principle? Or as Luke would say, daily deny yourself, pick up your cross and follow me. Is... The Christian life is a backwards life of to actually live, we have to die. We have to die to self. We have to die to our own desires and say, Christ, what, how do you want me to live? What are the things that you want me to pursue? How am I using my time? Is it for you or is it for me? And then Paul's saying it unites us together with him. But it also unites us together with one another. In in John Piper's podcast that I referenced just a a moment ago, he says it this way, baptism, it wasn't a fun climax to beach evangelism where everyone goes their separate ways with no reference to the church. No, baptism was a sacred expression of faith that unites you to Christ and his people, a particular people in a particular church where you can be nurtured and held accountable as the New Testament teaches. That's what baptism is. Now, we're going to springboard off of this next week and talk about why membership. Why do we think membership is important? And, and we're going to use this text, uh, we're going to use this quote, excuse me again, from Piper, because I think it's very important that we realize we are called to be held accountable under a group of elders in a local church. That's what Scripture teaches. And we want to be faithful in doing that. We want to unite one another together. Let's flip to Ephesians chapter 4, and I want to read another text. going to read verses 1 to 6 if you're following along. It says this, 
I therefore, a, prison, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. is in this text, Paul is arguing and he's using the example of baptism to show the unity that we should have together, not only with Christ, but with one another. In fact, the whole book of Ephesians is Paul saying to them, you need to unite together despite your differences. You're called to love one another with the love that Christ has loved you. And so when you see people who are different, when they have different expressions of of how they do things, even when sometimes they have some different theology than we do, we are called in grace to love them and to worship together with them. And yes, sometimes it may require us to correct some bad teaching. But we still do that with an attitude of love and grace and recognize that I don't hold the authority on truth. Someone may come along and need to correct me of something that I've said, even this morning maybe, because maybe I said something incorrectly or, or maybe I read a verse improperly and a different implication was brought out, is we need to submit ourselves under the word of God. How do we do that? By being in community with one another. Otherwise, we can't do that. This is why we talked so much at the beginning about why together, because if you just go from YouTube clip to YouTube clip, searching all kinds of great preachers, wonderful pastors, great churches, the the problem with that is you can get all this wonderful teaching, but as soon as you disagree with something, you can hit pause, or you can click on the link beside to another video and watch somebody else, and you don't have to hear anything that you don't like or that you disagree with. The whole New Testament church, which you see often is specifically Jew and Gentile coming together and the writers saying to them, you need to unite together, love each other. When you disagree with things, figure out a way to bring that to resolution. Don't just walk away and go, ah, it's not worth the effort. Said this many times, but Jesus said that we will know that we are his disciples by what? Love specifically what? The way that we love one another. So if Christians can't get along, what are we saying about Christ? What are we showing to the world? Literally, according to what Jesus said, we're showing we're not his disciples. And so we need to guard our hearts in that. So baptism is a way that we unite ourselves together. So I say it this way often is when somebody will come up and and either get baptized or sometimes they want to share their journey of faith with the whole church, um, in that public declaration of that, they are actually inviting you, the observer, into that relationship to say, you are now called, hold me accountable. Hold me to what I've declared that I want to live and how I want to live and who I want to follow. And so it's a partnership that we enter into together. It takes a great deal of courage and love to enter into that unity together. And so this is why, and we're going to talk about this again next week, but this is why some churches require you to be baptized to be a member because they see a connection here. Now, I do see that connection. Our church does not require that, but we do want to make it very clear and state as plainly as we can that we think baptism is not just something one should do. It's, one, it's something you're commanded to do by Jesus. Uh, Colossians 2, 11 and 12 also point out that the unity through baptism, um, it, it's just like... Uh, 
Paul says circumcision was a physical act to identify oneself to the one true God in the Old Testament. Well, now baptism does the same as we identify with Jesus together in the body. And one last clarification here. Well, actually, I got a couple more, sorry. Um, I said this word believer's baptism that we use. What does that mean? Well, here's, here's where this comes from. There are some traditions. Now, let me be clear here. If this is the tradition you were raised in, I am not trying to throw you under the bus. I'm not trying to fight with you. Again, we're trying to say, what does the scripture teach? What do we think is most consistent? And this is what we think is most consistent. So if you grew up in a different tradition, that is okay. We still love you exceedingly uh, through Christ, uh, but we just differ with you on this, and and I want to explain why. Some traditions have taught uh, that babies should be baptized, and there's a whole historical context that if you want to talk with me about later, you can do that. Um, But what typically happens is the infant is baptized, and then somewhere around 12, depending on the tradition, uh, that child will go through something that often they call confirmation or something similar. And that's where the individual says, that which my parents believed in faith and had me baptized, this is now what I am declaring that, yes, this is how I want to live. The only problem with that is you don't find that anywhere in the teaching of Scripture. We refer to it as believer's baptism because once somebody believes for themselves, then they are baptized. And that's what we find in Scripture. In Acts 16, there's one unique story about uh, the jailer, and he comes to repentance, and he comes to faith, and it says him and his whole household were believed and were baptized. But there's not very clear how old were his children. What does his household mean? Was it talking about servants in his household or only his immediate family? And so I think it's dangerous to create theology based on one verse that's as vague as that is when there are so many great examples, Philip and the Ethiopian being one that we read very clearly. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and then baptism. And so that's why we believe that. We think it's the most scriptural example. And for the sake of time, we're not going to get into all those examples. But all you can, if you go home, just go onto BibleGateway.com and type in baptism. And it'll bring up all the references to baptism. And you can just read through all those people who were baptized. And you can kind of see very clearly that baptism was the outward expression of what happened internally and the argument being that an infant can't make that decision for themselves. And so we wait for somebody to make profession of faith to say, yes, I want to follow Jesus. And then as as an outward act of that, then we go through baptism. Now, one last quick thing, and this is is just... um, So far, everything I think is very important as far as baptism. Now, here's a side note that is not, at least for me, uh, not as important. Is some traditions uh, pour pour water on, some sprinkle water on, and we do something called immersion where we actually, uh, for lack of a better word, dunk you in. It's not like you sit on a thing and we throw a ball and you fall in. That's that's not the idea here. But we just see this as symbolism in Scripture, and we read it in Acts 8, is they went down into the water. And then in Romans 6, Paul's example of going back into the water of a spiritual death and being raised again to new life. So we practice by immersion, and we think that's what's most biblical. But if you grew up in a tradition where you were poured or you were sprinkled upon, uh, we're not saying you need to be rebaptized. That's not the point. We're trying to say, were you baptized into Christ? And if you were baptized into Christ, then great, praise the Lord. We celebrate with you. But if you have not been baptized, this is why we do baptism by immersion. So that's the first ordinance. 
Um, again, August 21st, we are going to do a baptism service. So if you haven't been baptized, uh, consider that and please come and talk to us. Second one. The next ordinance is communion or referred to as the Lord's Supper. You can turn to 1 Corinthians 11. Uh, and we're gonna, we read this text nearly every month together, but we're going to read it in a little bit broader of a context. But I also want to remind you that about a year ago, we finished preaching. Oh, I shouldn't say finished. We were in the midst of preaching through 1 Corinthians. And so if you want to jump on our website, May 23rd, 2021 is when we specifically looked at this text in all of its uniqueness. And so uh, I'm not going to rehash that, but I would encourage you if you weren't here to, to read that. So uh, why do we come together once a month in our tradition? And, and some traditions do it every week. Some do it once a month. Some do it quarterly. Uh, I, I don't think that the Bible is very specific about how often one should do it, though it's one of those that in my mind probably more is better than less. Uh, but our tradition, we do it uh, once a month, the first Sunday of every month. We come together, we eat and we drink together. Um, but I want to just clarify a little bit more deeply about the importance of this ordinance. So let's read together, starting in uh, 1 Corinthians 11, verse 17. You know, again, there's a context here that we're not going to get into too much, but feel free to either jump online or you can come ask me any questions after if you'd like. But here's what it says. In the following instructions, I do not commend you because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part. For there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it's not the Lord's Supper that you, are eat, that you eat. For in eating, one goes ahead with his own meal, one goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. And then here's the verses we often read. For I received from the Lord what I delivered to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home so that when he comes together, it will not be for judgment about the other things. I will give you directions when I come. And there's a lot in that. But what's really interesting to note is if you do a little word search here on how many times it says one another or together in just those verses, it's, it's astounding. When you come together, as you are together, when you are with one another, over and over and over. So this, this church in Corinthians, and if you remember back a year and a bit ago, is as we went through that, that church was very broken, 
like they wanted to follow Jesus. There was a lot of confusion. There was a lot of un- misunderstanding about certain theologies. Paul had to correct a lot of things. And here's one of those things, is they knew that they were supposed to come together in remembrance of Jesus' death and resurrection. They knew they needed to do that, but how they were doing it was not about a body, though they were coming together. There were factions, there were divisions, there was, there was rich versus poor. There were all kinds of these separations where the church, that disappears. When you walk through the doors of a church, that's just a metaphor, so don't think of it as just the building. But when we gather together as the saints, it doesn't matter anymore what your job is, how much money you made last year. None of those things are important. What is important? That we're united together in Christ. We have the same identity. We have the same mission. We have the same purpose. We have the same value. We have the same dignity. So how could there be division? Only when we exalt myself ahead of somebody else. And that's what was happening here. And, and Paul says, no, 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 that's, that, that goes against exactly what the Lord's Supper is supposed to do. The Lord's Supper is meant that you come together and that you put aside all those things and that as you eat and as you drink that you remember, thank the Lord that he dealt with sin because I'm a wretch and I deserve nothing but death. That's the truth of it. And when we come face to face with the truth of the gospel, we can have no arrogance in our own heart because we recognize that Jesus died for me because I desperately needed forgiveness. And I was incapable of finding forgiveness on my own. I needed a savior. And that's true of every single one of us. There's not one person in this world that can stand before a holy God on judgment day and say, you know what, I was perfect, I did it right. And so by very definition, we're all in the same boat together. We're at different points in that maturity process. But thank the Lord that he's gracious to us on that maturity process. Because if you're anything like me, it's not this slow, steady increase into Christ-likeness. It's more like, Right? Where we learn something, we go, oh man, like this, this changes everything. And then next week, oh, I learned it again because I forgot. Like, isn't that our life? We need to be reminded of this often. So why do we gather together and take the Lord's Supper together? Because it levels the playing field. It puts us together as one again. I need Christ. Now, while we as believers, if you have confessed Jesus as Lord and Savior, again, you are saved. And so eating and drinking of that doesn't re-save you. I'm going to define that further in just a moment. But it doesn't, it's not an act of salvation, but it is a moment of slow down. Especially maybe in our culture. We're a very busy culture. Very fast-paced you got to fill in everything as fast as you can with as much as you can and be as efficient as you can. And I think sometimes in doing that, we lose sight of Christ. We lose sight of our actual purpose, our actual identity, what actually matters. So I think communion is a beautiful moment where we examine our hearts, where we ask the Lord, what's going on in me that needs to change? Where have I put idols in my life where I've put more significance on something than you? Would you reveal that to me and would you help me change that? And that's different for each one of us. We all struggle in different ways. We all have unique things that challenge us. But idolatry is at the root of all of our problems. Where we go, this one thing, this is more important than Jesus. We wouldn't probably say that way. But if somebody looked at our life, would they say that about us? If somebody said, what is the most important thing about you? 
what would they say? Would they say, man, their faith in the Lord Jesus? Or would they say, well, they sure like watching baseball. I'm going to go watch baseball later, so don't say, like, that's not the problem, right? You can still watch baseball. That's okay. But how big of a piece of your heart does it take? How important is it to you? I remember having a conversation with one of my friends in high school who uh, they actually changed their church service time uh, because they were a big NFL congregation, and so Sunday football. And they actually changed the time so that everyone could still go watch football. And they, found, they thought, man, we made a good compromise here, and I really argued about that. You didn't make a compromise. Well, you did. You made a compromise in your faith. You went, as long as I can still go watch football, I'll move church so that, so that, so that I can do that and that. You've put them on par. That means we have to make a lot of difficult decisions in our lives, right? It means we have to let go of a lot of things that maybe we would like to do or hobbies that we want to do or things that we think are, this is a once-in-a-lifetime thing. Now, again, that's not, I'm not trying to be legalistic about this, going, you can never, ever miss church, though you should always come. But, right, that's not the point. The point is, where's your heart? Like, if you, if you are off somewhere and you can't go to church for a couple of weeks, do you miss it and do you long for Christian fellowship and unity together again? If you don't, then I would argue that maybe you've misunderstood what church is. Communion is a beautiful way to do this because we slow down, we put ourselves on the same playing field, and we remind ourselves the only reason, as Ernie said, the only reason I'm on Jesus' team is because he died and rose again. He died for my sins. And I need to be reminded of that often. And so in a moment, we're going to do that together. We're going to eat and we're going to drink together. And we're going to remind ourselves that when we finish, when, you know, when I pray and we close and we walk over and we share with, with some snacks and coffee together, that we don't just walk in and, and we don't just judge each other based on income, based on job. We love each other the way that Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. That's what communion should do for us. I read from a commentator who, who viewed it this way. I thought this was really helpful. He said there's a holistic sense in which we take communion. There's first the physical act, the actual eating and drinking that takes place. But there's also a mental act that we read, the remembrance. We remember that Christ died for us, that he rose again. And then there's the spiritual act that takes place, which is us uniting together through faith as the body of Christ. We eat and drink together because all of these three, thring, these three things are together at once. We need to slow down our physical, our mental, and refocus our spiritual. Now, just before I invite the guys to come help me here for a moment, I just want to clarify one thing. And again, I'm not trying to insult a tradition that potentially that you grew up in, I'm trying to read very carefully what the Bible says and teach that. There's a teaching predominantly in the Catholic Church called transubstantiation. And it says here that once the minister blesses the bread and the cup that they literally turn into the body and the blood of the Lord. This teaching comes from some very literal readings on specific texts such as John chapter 6 where he says, if, unless you eat of my bread or my body and drink of my blood, you have no part in me. However, if you read the whole passage in its context, which we don't have time for, but I would encourage you to do, 
what you'll see is that Jesus is reminding the people back to the Exodus and how God sustained them with manna that literally fell from heaven and that that didn't finish it, but that Jesus' body and blood would be the fulfillment of that. In other words, he says it this way, those that ate the manna still died. But if you come to faith in Jesus, you'll live forever. In verse 63, he clarifies it very simply by saying this, it is the spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. This passage and the others that are often used, they're clearly symbolic. He's using metaphors that we would understand and interpret them literally the same way that Jesus says, unless you hate mother and father and brother and sister, or unless you hate, then you have no part of me. He's not literally telling you to go hate people. He's saying that Jesus should be on a category completely separate from everyone else in your life. Jesus should be first. And he's using that imagery of compared to how much you love Jesus, it's almost as though you should hate. There's, there's very clear times in Scripture where we look at and see symbolism and we not, need not interpret it literally. But I think even more important than that is that transubstantiation teaches that there is a re-sacrifice of Jesus for our sins. The implication here is that Jesus' sacrifice on the cross once for all was not sufficient and that it needs to be done over and over again as we continue struggling with our battle and sin. But Hebrews 7.27 says this very clearly, speaking of Jesus, he has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. So we don't teach that this literally becomes the body and the blood of the Lord because we think that happened once according to scripture, that Jesus offered himself in our place once. And when we come together, we slow down, and in the basic everyday act of we all need to eat and drink, we slow down even in this act, that just like manna physically sustained them, that wasn't the point. Just like our food physically sustains us, that's not the point. And so in, in this specific context in Corinthians, Paul's saying, like, if you're hungry, eat at home, because that's not what this meal's about. This meal's about coming together and in the act of eating and drinking, remembering that our very life sustenance comes from only Jesus. In, in John chapter 4, Jesus says to the woman at the well, or not to the woman at the well, pardon me, to his disciples after he's spoken with the woman at the well, they're like, man, you need to eat something. And he goes, I got food that you don't know about. And it's to do the Father's will. That's where we put our hope. That's where we remind ourselves we are united together in Christ, not only me and Christ, but us and Christ. This is why ecclesiology matters, because this is not about me and some personal relationship that I have with Christ, though it is that. It's not only that. It's about the body. It's about together. It's about a great commission that we were given and a great commandment that we were given, that we would love God, that we would love each other, and that we would go into the world. Why do we do baptism? Because it points to all of those things. Why do we take the Lord's Supper? Because it points to all of those things. That as we unite ourselves together in one body, we do this to honor Christ. So I'm going to invite the guys up, but I just want to make one last clarification as they come up. 
this Lord's Supper that we partake in has, has no significance at all if you haven't put your faith and your hope in Jesus. And there's no judgment for that from any of us. We would love to have a conversation with you about Jesus and what he means to us. But if you have the elements come to you and, and you haven't confessed Jesus as Lord and Savior, then just let it pass by. It has no bearing. It has no, no meaning on you right now. And I hope and pray that that changes. I hope that you do see that significance and you do say, I want to follow Jesus. And then by all means, we would love for you to eat and drink together with us. So let me pray as the guys come up. And then we're going to hand out the bread first and pray again, and then we'll hand out the cup. So God, as we, as we have talked about baptism and communion, these things unite us together in you, but also in one another. And this physical act of, of baptism, which we're going to do again on August 21st, I am so excited to unite someone into the body of Christ in that unique way. And now for our purposes right now, I'm so thankful that once a month that we come together and that we slow down and that we evaluate our own hearts or, or as Paul says, examine our hearts. God, we know that we live in a very hectic and busy world where just about everything is competing for our attention and our focus. But God, we have declared that Jesus Christ is Lord of our life and that means everything filters through you. So as we've talked about here this morning, our identity, our value, our dignity, all of those don't come from our jobs or financial status or any of those things. It comes, we're a child of God. And so we thank you that Christ loved us to the end, as Scripture says. That he was willing to sacrifice his life in the place of ours that we might have a chance to be with you again. So God, if for those who have confessed Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, we do this to honor you today. And we do this to love one another. God, for those, if there's anyone here this morning that does not know who you are, I pray that you would invigorate their hearts to an insatiable desire to figure out who Jesus was. And God, may we be able to be a part of that conversation and show them the difference, the impact, the, the complete change that has happened in our hearts because of you. So God, as we hand out this little cracker that represents your body that was broken for us, we are so thankful that your love knew no limits.
This represents Christ's body. It's broken for us. Let's eat in remembrance of him. And God, as we pass out the cup now, which represents your blood, we're reminded all the way back to the Old Testament that sacrifice happened over and over and over again. It was pointing to one day when the perfect blood of your son would come. So God, we thank you that Jesus lived a perfect life in obedience to you that he went to the cross, that he sacrificed his life for us, and that his blood changes everything. We have now found forgiveness. That righteousness of Christ has been imputed or, or given to us. And that we no longer have to live in sin any longer. But that we can learn to follow you that you have given us the Holy Spirit so that we can know what is right and true and we can run after those things. God, thank you that you have united us together as one body, even though there's many different places represented here in this room today. But first and foremost, we are the body of Christ. But God, also there's a local expression of that that I am so thankful for. Thank you for those who call Banff Park Church their home. Thank you for their love for one another. Thank you for their desire to serve you. And God, for those who have come to visit us this morning, we pray a blessing on them as they go back to their local church. Pray that this would have been a time of refreshing for them, but that as they get back, that they get eager to serve one another again in their context. God, all of this only takes place because of your blood spilled for us, and so we are so thankful. So be with us in these moments as we consider all of these truths. Amen.
This cup represents Christ's blood, which was spilled for us. Let's drink in remembrance of him. God, as we go from this place to the various things that you have called us to, we pray that we would constantly root ourselves back in the truth that we are a son and daughter of you. That through the blood of Jesus that we have forgiveness and we have purpose and meaning and you have given us such value. So God, go with us in these moments. Guide us, direct us. Help us to honor you with how we live and how we talk. Amen.